You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Next up on Destination Freedom. When things hit with George Floyd, I was asked to come speak in Denver. And I was devastated. And the first thing I thought was... How do I speak at something for a man that didn't live here, that had no direct connection to any one of us, and yet no one was there for Elijah McClain, and this was in our own backyard. Welcome to Destination Freedom Black Radio Days podcast. I'm producer and director, Donnielle Betts. I'm proud to share with you a series of interviews with healthcare providers, COVID-19 survivors, and social justice warriors. It's Destination Freedom Black Radio Days on my conversation with an amazing activist, actionivist, Candace Bailey. And now, Candace Bailey. So let's start first with your work in the COVID community. You were just uh, describing a little bit of what you, a project that you're working on. Yeah, so I have several different projects that are happening around COVID and the pandemic itself um, because we know that in our communities, Black and BIPOC, so Black, Indigenous, or people of color are always at the bottom of the bucket, <clears throat> excuse me, um, in every system. And so the health system is no different. Um, It is completely infringed on our lives. We are the highest to have an underlying health condition. All of the things that we know are white supremacist tactics um, and oppressor-led motions within our lives. So I started by just simply supporting community um, with food. So we were just taking food um, through my sister organization, The Compound of Compassion, we had our youth program called Generation Drive Through um, that was already active in assisting our elders in getting medication and getting to the doctor and going to the grocery store, whatever the case may be. <clears throat> and so when COVID hit, it really just was a transference where we were helping every family. So we were having deliveries made to families with groceries, with medication needs, no matter what was occurring. Um, And as that situation began to really transpire differently, uh, we saw some changes in the needs that would be presented to our community and to our our most needy in our community, our houseless neighbors, our youth who were going out and really going against a lot of the things that were coming about once the pandemic began. 
um, would become displaced, even from their own homes, because their parents didn't agree with them coming against um, some of the things that were happening in our community. And so that led me to um, a project with Metro Caring, <clears throat> excuse me, that um, I would be the facilitator who would go around and interview um, people about how COVID had affected their life and um, what things had happened, what things would be permanent marks in their lives, um, just a million different things. And then it became became an even broader conversation nationally around health equity and equity overall um, within our communities because we were seeing such a, a high spike in our community itself um, that we had to get ahead of it. So we have continued to just kind of be a rail for the community to make sure that there's babies have diapers and formula and mothers have you know, a uh, time where they can break away and just take a breath and um, that all of our basic needs are met within our community as the second round of lockdown begins. We're giving out thermometers and just continuing to educate our community around what's healthy um, and how to really uh, navigate during what I call um, post-traumatic pandemic stress disorder. Yes. Uh, because we are all living in that. We all now suffer from a stress disorder that is re connected, related directly to this pandemic. And so really that's been kind of how I have supported the COVID work um, and our community just overall during complete chaos. Can you tell us once again the, the name of your sister organization? You, you described it at the beginning of that. Sure, yeah. So my I so I have my own company, which is Lighthouse Consultants Colorado LLC. I am one of the founders of Frontline Party for Revolutionary Action. And my sister organization is the Compound of Compassion, um, ran by Shana Armstrong or Shana Shaw. Um <clears throat> So those are the three organizations, and I work with McBride Foundation. I work collaboratively with a lot of different organizations, but for the most part, um, I deal directly with the compound as far as um, the things that we're doing in community nonprofit-wise. That's my sister organization. Can you uh, <clears throat> share with us a website for each one of those so people who want to reach out and uh, lend a hand, they can do that? Indefinitely. So Lighthouse Consultant Colorado is really and was really founded a few years ago by myself. Um, I made the decision that within community, there would be a need for some of the things that I do have expertise in, whether it was lived experience or book experience. Um, I knew that there were organizations that need help with equity, with diversity, um, with systems management, with lab management. Um, and so that's really where um, Lighthouse started from. The Compound of Compassion was originated um, by Shana Shaw and myself, um, and it began because I was actually involved in, I was a mortgage broker in the early 2000s um, in Chicago, and the Cabrini Greens had come down, a neighbor had frozen in front of my home, and it led me to um, housing equity. So I began doing container homes um, across the world um, to really put together equity in home ownership. Um, 
And so that began the compound of compassion. We would start building container homes across the world um, to bridge the gap between the highest and the lowest because home ownership and land ownership are continued legacies for our community that have just been cut out of the picture, um, sadly. So that's how the compound began. But then it just, it kind of um, blew up into this other needed entity within community because we saw a rise in youth violence, in domestic violence. Um, There were so many holes within so many different places. We had to really become an organization that supported the people um, at just basic levels, just basic needs levels, but youth led so that we were really grabbing a hold of our future but keeping our ancestors and our elders in mind throughout all of this. Um, Gosh, McBride Foundation is Jason McBride, and he and I partner in several ways. So we do backpack drives, turkey drives, (laughs) toy drives. Um, We work in juvenile justice together. So we shared a caseload for about the past three to five years um, with juveniles in the justice system. And... As a result, Jason has moved into his own space from um, GRASP in order to do intervention, prevention, and interruption inside of violence in the youth community. So those are the primary organizations um, that I deal with, and we probably do a plethora more than that, but that's just the basics. So you mentioned used the word interruption. So, <clears throat> as uh, some people will realize that in within the last two weeks, they have uh, five uh, youth that have been killed. <clears throat> sorry, uh, oh, in our community, and um, you're one of those people that are out there on the front line working to try to um, dispel this violence before it really spells spills out into something like uh, in Denver, in Colorado, we call it the summer of violence of 1992 and 93. Um, Talk about some of those things that you are doing and other organizations are doing to try to help young people uh, ring in some of the, the, the things that are going on in their lives, especially with COVID-19 and not being able to go to school and not having jobs this summer, those kind of things that I've led, I think have led to some of the violence that we're seeing now. Um, I think that there are so many factors that have led to the violence um, that it's almost like a strainer. We're going to end up with a few things that come out, like the water is going to come out, but all of the ingredients that are really creating this will still be left in that strainer. And I think it's really the things that our community does not want to deal with, that white supremacy does not want to deal with. Um, There are roots to every tree. White supremacy happens to be one of the major roots that is leading to youth violence. White supremacy has led the show in the separation of the black, Latina, I'm sorry, Latinx, um, indigenous people of color community. Um, All of the systems that have been implied, housing, welfare, all of these things were to our detriment, not to our growth. They never built us. They actually created um, the things that we're seeing today and there's this big, dumb look on people's face, which is almost disgusting to me because I don't understand how you can understand how one directly ties to the other. If 
white supremacy said we will remove the black man by creating a housing system and a welfare system and we will incarcerate them. I don't understand how, how others don't understand that this is a direct tie to the white supremacist systems that we are living under. Um, also, the decolonization of our own minds um, is critical in what is happening. So there have to be some very courageous conversations that don't feel good um, within our community about the ways that we are treating each other, the ways we are disrespecting each other, what leadership looks like, um, how we put humanity back in and really remove our slave-driven mind from every element of our lives every single day. Um, but unless or until we are really ready to get to the work, we will continue to shoot each other in the face and be an entanglement, since that's the new 2020 word, for the next who knows how long. Um, I, I think that we could be on the phone for the next 400 years discussing the recipe to this madness, but we all know what it is. It's just time to call it out. Yes. Yes. Call it, call it what it is, you know. Uh, <clears throat> And many people have been saying it for years and years and years, like I said, but now um, it, it just needs to end. You said it needs to end, you know. Uh, yeah. my, my One of the things I've been saying is I don't want to have any more hashtags, you know. Right. We need right. to stop it. And we won't have right. those anymore. So. Uh, well, I was just at a vigil the other day for another young man, and <clears throat> um, someone said, let's take a moment of silence right now. And that crushed me. Because I thought to myself, if I added together all of the moments of silence that I had incurred, I would never say anything. I would just remain silent. And someone, oh, well, a lot of someones keep coming to me and saying, Candace, what are you doing for self-care, self-care, self-care? Yes, and one day I was just finally pissed. And I said, what? Do you understand that the act of what I am doing is the greatest form of self-care I will mm. ever give to myself in life. Incredible. I will love myself beyond white supremacy. I will love myself beyond oppression. I will no longer turn my cheek away and hope that something is going to change. I will love myself, my village, and my children so much that I will get up and I will keep my sword drawn and I will fight to the death of me because what I know is my ancestors never got to go to some beach and dig their toes into sand. They never got to go drink a Mai Tai. They didn't get to go sit down and play dominoes with their friends. After childbirth, my ancestors would cut that cord and put that baby in a wrap around her body and continue to slave away. So if someone's looking for a break or someone's looking for some self-care, this is the biggest form of self-care we, as Black people, Indigenous people of color, will ever display in our entire lives. And anyone who says, go take a vacation, needs to sit their ass down permanently. <laughs> there were no vacations on the plantation, and just because we are not getting whipped in the back does not mean that we are not still on the plantation, and I cannot rest. I will not rest. And this is self-care in its finest. We have been told what love is, and we don't know what love is, and that's a problem. Love in its finest is exactly what you are saying from me. And so I hear a lot 
We are not our ancestors. And I call bullshit on that too, Donnie, because I am my ancestors. My ancestors died for this. I was the woman who would have been locked in a sweat box for days at a time, even though I was a product of Massa. My daddy was a white man. So I think as this continues to develop and we talk about self-care, I want us to really internalize and decolonize even our thought process around what self-care truly looks like. Thank you so much for sharing that. I mean, breaking that down for us. That's, I want people to really listen and hear that, you know, hear that, hear what you're saying about self-care. Self-care is putting in the work. You know, yeah. what you've been doing yeah. and others have been putting in the work. So I want to pivot just for a moment to talk about a couple other things. That is your work uh, first on uh, Senate Bill uh, 217. Uh, yourself oh, and okay. Terrence, Terrence Roberts and others put in a lot of work to get that passed, and then we'll move on to some other things from that. But let's talk about how that bill came about uh, through your work that you did. So Senate Bill 20-217 originated about five and a half, six years ago in the actual writing process. So it was probably developed since I was 16 years old when um, my first love got locked up, um, got life in prison um, at just 16 years old. Um, Our child would die as a result. This is my life's work. And so I have traversed the disparities within systems for 30 plus years because I lived them. Um, So the work began way, 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 way back then. Um, However, the writing started about five years ago. So about five years ago, um, working inside of juvenile justice, I was looking at the disparities inside of systems and getting the overstanding that even though it was the adult system that was perpetuating the things that happened with our juveniles, we weren't addressing um, any of it at all because it was a moneymaker. It was the new plantation. Right. And so I began writing this because every young adult um, that I had met, every juvenile that I had met that was entangled in the justice system would graduate and go into the adult system. And so that is where my reform writing began because I felt I had, I had been incarcerated as well. So I had done a stint in the penitentiary as well. Um, and it was only my privilege that would allow me not to receive a life sentence as well. And so having lived inside of the penitentiary and seeing what the graduatory process looked like from juvenile into the adult system, having lived through both, um, I I overstood where the catches and and the snares and the traps were at. Um, I became a systems expert through lived experience, and I understood that one cog would automatically trip another cog and so on and so forth. And so five years ago, I began, based on human life story, I began taking apart the bullet holes within the cheese. So the body cams, the excessive force, the post-certification that would allow you to murder someone and go somewhere else across the country and get another job and murder someone else. Um, I, I looked at the roots of um, police. They were slave catchers. 
uh, I look at the funding of police and some of the things that they were contracted to do that had nothing to do with the police whatsoever. Um, I, as I began to take those things apart, I remember probably about two and a half years in, I was just hysterically crying, just crying and sobbing over a notebook that I had just written notes on um, over and over. And I had changed and changed and changed. And something inside of me said, you must write this. You must write this because this is the first step in liberation. And so fast forward to 2020, Terrence Roberts and I go to the Capitol. This is probably my seventh trip to a legislator, to a representative, to someone who could help me get legislation passed. Um, and so we talked with Leslie Herod and James Coleman and we were basically told, and not even basically, we were told that it would never happen. Um, we were given every excuse under the sun. This is a police-run state, the FOP, blah, 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 blah. Every possible and potential um, reasoning to know was given to us. We left the Capitol that day devastated. Um, I was literally told that I was insane, that I would be murdered if I wrote legislation against the police in the state of Colorado. And then <laughs> COVID happens <laughs> and um, George Floyd happens mm -hmm. and Leslie Herod and Serena Gonzalez Gutierrez, which happened to be my old boss in juvenile justice, wow. um, come out with legislation that I wrote. 16 days, supposedly, they wrote this legislation in, um, and that's a lie. I mean, there's no way around that. You did not write. That, that is such a misnomer and a red herring. You can talk to anyone who writes policy, and I guarantee you they will tell you, even if you had a team of 25 of the brightest, most brilliant policy writers on the planet, you would never, ever be able to come up with the legislation that happened in 16 days. It is impossible, Donnie. Yeah. Impossible. Well, we, <laughs> we know that everything moves so slowly, like you said, and, and you know, yeah. you have to write, you, can go, you know, go to committees and the bill is rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten. So. Yeah, over and over again. And so literally what happened was they took my legislation and they kicked the teeth out of the dog. So... People kept writing me and calling me and saying, Candace, have you seen this SB 20-217? And I kept just pushing it away. And I'm like, no, I haven't seen it. No, I haven't seen it. Until finally, I was asked um, to come and testify on the bill by Leslie Herod, and, uh, which was interesting because as the writer, I don't know that I should be testifying. However, um, there was something that came over me. At first, I was very hurt. Because it's something that continues to happen within our community that someone will get in a position and take credit for things that they did not do by someone who has been doing the fight and the work for a very long time. And yes. it's, it's repeated in yes. our history, right? But then the, the, the universe came to me and said, Candace, really, what is your destination? Is your destination to get credit for all the things that you've done? Or is your destination to change the future? for your children, for everyone's children. Um, and I had to check myself. And so on this journey of actionism, I am literally leaving my flesh for others. Um, that is a requirement within the revolution. I cannot 
self-absorbed. I cannot be thinking about what outcome happens for Candace because that's not why I'm here. That is not what my responsibility is. That is not what I was called to do. I was called to lead the people into revolution, and that will require that I leave Candace at the curb every morning. And so 20-217 was a lesson in humility, a lesson in selflessness, a lesson in real revolution. Um, And that's just kind of how I view 20-217. It is the cornerstone in the revolutionary work that I have to do and the selflessness that will be required of me throughout all of this. something else that you have been really working very hard on the front line and the friends with the family of Elijah McClain. Mm-hmm. Can you break down the situation there, where it stands today, kind of give us a little history as you're leading us until um, from August 2019 until July of 2020? Wow. So the Elijah McClain chase <clears throat> came to me out of community. So I was driving down the street one day, someone calls me and says, hey, Candace, um, you remember the boy who got murdered just a couple weeks ago, um, Elijah McClain? And I said, yeah. Um, and they said, well, they are attempting to get the site where he was murdered cleaned up so that they can have a vigil. And I said, okay. Um, so I happened to be right there, um, strangely. and. I hung up the phone. I made another phone call 
Um, and within minutes, a friend of mine came with his lawnmower, and we were outside. Shanine McLean was there. Her great aunt, Doris Lee, was there. Her other children were present. Um, and we met, and it was as if we had known each other all of our lives. We hadn't skipped a beat. And I think we just instinctually knew that we were sewn together on this journey. Um, Shanine and I have really not skipped a beat since. We pretty much stayed connected at the hip and just kind of watched the circus happening around us. Mm. Um, gosh, from the beginning, well, there were a few things that stood out to me. <clears throat> Elijah was undeniably the connector for the universe. He could touch the life of the little white lady in middle America who loved cats and violins, right? Yes. He was actually symbolic in something so much deeper to me. You know, people are always taking apart um, anyone who was murdered to police, police brutality, saying, oh, they had a gun. Oh, they were a felon. Oh, they raped somebody's mother 20 years ago. With Elijah, you could never do that. Part of his soul connected to my soul. And here's a really interesting conversation. So when this all began, they were fighting us about releasing the police body cam. Correct. And Shanine McLean and I would be arguing, and Mari Newman would be arguing incessantly and requesting that body cam legislation to be released. So a few days before they allowed Shanine McLean to see some of that body cam footage, I had a dream. And in that dream, I would hear the audio of Elijah McLean being murdered. I was completely in the dark. And I couldn't see anything in my dream, Donnie, and I didn't understand it. And I, I just held it. I was crying hysterically. But something in me knew that it was Elijah. I knew it was Elijah. And so a few days later, strangely, APD calls Shanine in, says we're going to release the body cam footage to the public Literally, a few hours before they release it to the public, they allow Shanine to come in and watch it. And Shanine and I had talked about the dream that I had just a day prior, um, but I didn't give her details. So she goes in to see the video. When she goes in to see the video, she calls me directly after, and she's hysterical. I go to her, and her and I talk. And she doesn't tell me anything about the video, but we sit down and we begin to talk about the dream that I had. And as I'm telling her what I could hear, because I explained to her that it was dark, it was black, I couldn't see anything in the video. I could hear rustling, I could hear, I, could, I repeated words that Elijah said in the video to Shanine. And she lost it. And she said, Candace, you cannot possibly know this. You are saying almost verbatim what Elijah was saying when they murdered him. And I think that was a deep revelation for us, that many things would be revealed to me and through me that weren't for others to know or to understand. And it would almost sound like this craziness Unless you were Shanine, unless you were me, unless you knew and talked to me prior to the release of that video, which several people had, 
you didn't know that I knew what no one else knew until everybody else knew what I knew. And so then we continued to fight and battle and fight and battle. We were at every community meeting for city council. We were writing letters to Dave Young, who also had murdered a friend of mine. So this was a multifaceted situation for me because Dave Young would end up murdering a friend of mine just a month prior to Elijah McClain. Um, he was having an affair with a family advocate and he murdered her. And when it came to light about this event, um, her family would be so afraid that they would say that they did not believe that Dave Young had anything to do with the murder of their daughter. Um, so this was very deep for me because I had been in contact um, with the lady that he murdered and we were um, both actually family advocates in the state. It's just, it's, it's overwhelming to know that I have such a deep connection on so many levels to Elijah McClain, to Dave Young, to the atrocity and the murder that he committed and buried, and now Elijah McClain's murder that he would bury. And I know that the two go together. One cannot receive justice without the other. So as we began to fight and continue to fight, Dave Young would negate everything that we did. We would work with APD in attempting to um, get resolution. I have attempted to be a conduit between community, law enforcement, media, I mean, just on every level, because the narrative has been swayed so deeply. Right. We continued to make actions around Elijah McClain because we would not be silenced and he would not die in vain. There was a commitment made to Shanine McClain by me. I can't speak for everyone else, but for me, I will carry that commitment forward unless or until the family says that I have honored that. When things hit with George Floyd, I was asked to come speak in Denver, and I was devastated. And the first thing I thought was, how do I speak at something for a man that didn't live here, that had no direct connection to any one of us, and yet no one was there for Elijah McClain, and this was in our own backyard. Right. And I thought about how devastating that was for Shanine because I knew that they were going to reach out to Shanine to come speak as well. And at first I said, oh, hell no, I'm not coming to speak for George Floyd all the way in Minnesota. And the universe said to me, Candace, you go down to that capital and you speak. And so I got down there and I did speak. And it would be the one and only time that I would speak at a George Floyd protest in the city of Denver at all. And I would actually help Kay Anderson lead the march that day. Um, but I literally talked to the crowd about the fact that we had been out there warring for almost eight months with the city of Aurora around Elijah McClain and that no one had shown up. 
and how devastating it was to me to see tens of thousands of people turn out in Denver um, for George Floyd, who was in Minnesota, and never show up a day for our babies and our people who have been murdered right here on this soil. And I was devastated, and I verbalized that, and I was marching, and I said, you know what? I'm going to do the Blackout 2020 in Aurora, and I'm inviting everyone to come and speak. Because why are we talking about George Floyd in Denver, and we're not discussing Elijah McClain in Aurora? And so just three days later, in three days, I would organize Blackout 2020 by myself, essentially, by relational uh, organizing. So every person that I knew I was calling and I was saying, call so-and-so, call such-and-such, make so make sure so-and-so is here and such-and-such is here. And literally, I had 75 organizations and speakers ready to speak. Um, and then it just blew up and it went on from there. And we ended up forming the Frontline Party for Revolutionary Action. Terrence, Terrence uh, Roberts and I did. Um, at the end of last year, we've been working with TSL, um, the Party for Socialism and Liberation, because they have been showing up for the Elijah McClain case as well. And um, now that we have global recognition and things continue to transpire and unfold, obviously we surrounded the police department and <laughs> we've had violin vigils and our actions continue. We just had a car rally. I mean, we have done a vast multitude of actions um, that we have included community in, but actions at a deeper level um, attached to even the actions that we do. So, for instance, we surrounded the police department, um, and I went in and I became um, one of the members of the Budget Oversight Committee in Aurora and the Police Oversight Committee in Aurora so that I could begin the process of actually reallocating the funds that go to police departments that don't belong with them um, and overseeing what their behaviors look like um, on the oversight committee and how we as a community are weighing in on that. So every action that we do in community with community also has an action that we do politically, that we do legally, um, that we do that has a deeper attachment to it. Uh, we don't want to just slap your hand. We want to make sure that you understand that there is also consequence with the hand slapping. So that's kind of been the path for Elijah. Um, and we're not going to give up. Right now, Shanine McClain is on an all-media blackout until her son's murderers are in prison for life. Um, she wants a first degree, we want a first degree homicide conviction. This was homicide. Uh, there's no way around it. And that's just where we are. I will continue to scream at the planet incessantly. Um, and I will continue to address police brutality across this country. Next Friday, I will actually be in Louisville, uh, Kentucky to speak, um, around the Breonna Taylor situation and the 87 protesters that were illegally arrested um, just a couple days ago. So I am now on a national trek and an international trek in gaining justice 
for everyone who was murdered at the hands of police brutality. Well, we want to thank you for your work. And you mentioned a lot of places where I've actually been standing in the back watching you work and other people work. Um, One, just because I think for me, it's it's COVID-19 has me afraid to be right in the middle of people like that sort of thing. And two is what I do is what we're doing now, this interview and, you know, photography and video and things like that too. So you'll see some of my work that way. So, but I've, you know, I have footage of you and (laughs) recordings of you and other people who have spoken. So that's the way I can do my work. You know, uh, some people say, you know, get in where you fit in. That's where I fit in. So, um, and I'm doing different um, panels and stuff like that, leading that and organizing people to get together. But the work that you're doing is incredible. And thank you so thank much you. for sharing about Elijah McLean because, as you said, it's it's, it's international now. Uh, there have probably been 20 states uh, or 20 cities that have had violent individuals. As you said, how many, uh, you know, my grandson, uh, is that his violin lesson right now as we speak, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so someone who loves and plays to animals, and you say can, can, everybody can identify with him, now to have three grown men crush him uh, for no other reason than someone called and said he's being erratic. And I always wondered about these people who make these calls. How can we hold them accountable too? That leads directly to a person's death. You know, right. um, Juan, you know, I mean, I'm, of course I don't know his last name, but I know that his name was Juan that made the phone, the 911 call uh, about Elijah McClain. So I always wanted to see what kind of mechanism we can put in place where that person or persons can be held accountable as well too. So. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Indefinitely. We can't continue down the path that we've been on. My grandmother used to always say, if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. Mm. And I think that's part of the reason that there is such a large navigation towards me. Um, yes. People are tired of the status quo. They want someone that they can trust, that listens to them, that tells the truth, that transparency is not an issue, um, but also has lived experience. Because I often say we cannot tell someone to heal from something we've never been hurt by. Correct. Um, and I believe that. That is an ingrained identity within me. I work with women who have lost their children to violence. Um, It's one of the other things that the universe put on me, and it was crazy because it started around Elijah, and Shanine McLean said, Candace, you're the only one who can do this, Mm -hmm. and we ended up with a few women in the group, and then every week, our number would double, and it hasn't stopped yet. Our motherhood network, and we also do fatherhood um, as well, so fatherhood support services and myself run a group at a Dayton Opportunity Center um, for parents and families who have lost their children to violence. Um, We do wakes, we help with funerals, we do advocacy um, with victims' assistance. Um, We do just about everything you can think of in that vein, especially because the violence has been overflowing. Domestic violence, youth violence, gang violence. Violence on every level, and our mothers are not being supported. Um, It's part of what, yeah, we're just left behind. Mm -hmm. We're just told to deal with it. Right, right, Uh, 
Right, as you said, find yeah. find a place that you can heal yourself. Well, like you said, doing the work that's your yes, your healing, and you can't tell <clears throat> people who haven't walked in in those shoes to do that, you know, because it, it it's yeah. a profound effect for generations. I had a conversation with um, Tamaria Rice, uh, the mother of Tamara Rice, um, last year about that. Yeah. You know, and that's what she was saying too. The impact is on my children, not just me. My other children have been traumatized for the rest of their lives, you know. Mm-hmm. Always hearing something or feeling something or and and I'm sure the mothers and fathers that you deal with are the same way, you know. So yeah. um I, yeah. this has been incredible. Thank you so much again for sharing, you know. Um you also have said, I've read some of the things you said too, if young people come to you and they want to know how to do this work, you mm-hmm. will help them. Can you share yeah. some of that um, wisdom for some maybe who may be listening to this, that they want to sure. do so, the work as well too? Sure. So <clears throat> one of the things that I do is I teach civic engagement to three to 11 year olds. One of the realities that this fight has brought about, well, I, I knew far before this, but one of the realities that it has really highlighted was that um, our community does not even understand civic engagement. So when all this started with Elijah, there was a group of youth um, just a few weeks ago, probably about two months ago, that led a rally. And I just went and joined them to support them, um, the organization 10 for 10. Uh, No, I'm wrong. It wasn't 10 for 10 who led it. It was another youth organization. At any rate, they come, the police chief walks with us, literally. And I mean, they're going off on her. They're yelling at her. They're cussing her out. And I just, I walked. I walked with them. And it was very interesting. And we get to the steps of the municipal center in Aurora. And they're yelling at her, like, do this, do that, do this. And I had to stop them and say, look, y'all, I hear your anger but it is misdirected and misguided. Mm. You are talking to the chief of police about something that the DA does, about something that so-and-so does and -and so-and-so. So I have to break down what civic engagement looks like and really, if you just look at the, the path of my life, right, you could look back and use my life as a blueprint for your life. I did not do a single thing that another human being cannot do. I literally went into civic engagement and I didn't let up. So I began engaging at a level that was comfortable for me until I was educated. So that would mean things like listening to podcasts to understand the structure of government overall. I began going to community meetings so that I could understand who the players were that were politically engaged, that had a say in my life. Um, I would begin getting involved with the district attorneys to understand what their stance was in the laws and how they were actually instituting white supremacy within our ju- within our justice system. Um, I would educate myself in the realm of um, policy because I needed to understand how policy was written. I needed to understand the process that would happen with policy from the lowest level to the highest level. Um, I think literally I've just given a blueprint via my life. Uh, I began joining committees. I've sat on boards. I have dealt with administrative inequity and made myself available for that. So rather than 
being someone who writes to get a grant. I'm the individual who approves you when you have written for a grant to make sure that it is our community that receives it. We do travel so those paths together. <laughs> I do. Yes, I do. And so I think that when you see an issue, don't continue to look at the issue. Become the solution. That means that you're going to have to take the time to find out how your government is structured, how you work, and really become a conduit of change. Um, I have simply placed my feet in the places that I know have needed the greatest amount of me, of me, because a lot of me has been missing. We are always the face. And when I say a lot of me, I mean black woman. A black woman is likely um, to be the last person who is selected in many realms and genres because they'll pick a black man who feels safe, right? Because then they're meeting their status quo, so to speak. But a black woman brings something else, a different element into the realm. Um, there's an understanding of a different kind of war inside of a black woman. And so it was very often that I would be in the room, I would be the only black woman, usually the only woman in many of the woke people spaces, especially inside of juvenile justice, inside of policy writing, inside of civic engagement, inside of the Capitol. I was counting on one hand how many of us existed. And so when people come to me and they ask me, how do I do the work? There are several things that I say. I say, first of all, everyone is not a Candace Bailey. Everyone is not the voice of revolution. I didn't ask for the assignment. It just so happens that my voice is a requirement. Um, secondly, just because you're not on a microphone yelling and screaming does not mean that you're not a revolutionary and that you're not doing the work. That is only two seconds of my life that people see. The work I do is much deeper. Um, and it's not just screaming on a microphone. It is action attached to action attached to action. Um, the third part of that is not everyone is ready. Not everyone is ready. Not everyone is ready because there has to be a detachment from the flesh in order for you to lose the ego that will inevitably rise up somewhere in this journey. Mm. And so I think that that is the third element of this. If you have not dealt with your healing, if you have not dealt with your human being, um, the likelihood of you being an effective leader or an effective <clears throat> piece on the chessboard is, is highly unlikely. You will bring more trauma and more unresolved issue than you will healing, resolution, and revolutionary action. Um, so I think that's the things that I tell to people about doing some of the things that I do, becoming some of who I have become, and understanding that we all will not be Candace Bailey. There is no way. There's no way. And I wouldn't want it. I wouldn't anticipate it. Um, what I do anticipate is that humans leave my human out of our journey. Stop saying you support Candace Bailey. This is not, this is not my show. Start saying that you support your community because that is the show. Yes. We continue to attach flesh to our journey 
to our war, to our existence, and that's not real. Stop attaching it to a human being. Humans will let you down every time. Attach it to what it really attaches to, and that's our future. Uh, My ancestors did not die because they wanted to eat a sandwich on Tuesday. They died so that we could continue this revolution in 2020. Thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate what you do for community and that our community um, and our elders really tune in to you. They listen to you and they know that you support um, community leaders that are out here really doing the work and that you can activate a different kind of community. I think that's where we're also losing ourselves. Um, You know, we're losing our elders. Just even the statement of I am not my elders is a disgusting one to me Mm. because I am my elders. And we cannot know where we're going if we don't know where we have been. Our elders house such knowledge that we continue to turn away from that is really reckless and really detrimental to our course. One of my mentors was the late Lauren Watson, and he spoke life into me in a way unimaginable. I went to um, a speech that he did with some of the Chicano leaders from the um, Chicano movement, probably in the 90s or maybe early 2000s, And he spoke life into me that I would not understand until just this year. And I I called his era one day and I was just on the verge of tears. And I said, you do not know how bad I want to call your daddy to help (laughs) me walk through this. Yes. (laughs) Because you definitely knew what to do and how to do it. Yeah. And afraid to do it. You know? Right. Yeah. And that's what it takes. And he told me that, you know, he said, Candace, it will take courage unrefined that you will never even know where it came from Mm. it will take so much of not you but the universe you will have to leave yourself out of the picture so many times a day this is not a sprint baby this is a marathon and you will have to protect yourself in every way possible and those words would ring so true to me over the past few weeks about qualifying my network protecting myself from skin folk who are not my kin folk, mm-hmm. um, really looking at what changes the underlying things that we're not addressing. Um, our community being self-sufficient, our community loving our babies and providing a space for them that is protected. Yes. Um, black men addressing the violence against black women and their fallout yes. with black women. Um, the infiltration of white women into our homes and our families and our beds. I mean, so many layers of things that Lauren would talk to me about that I didn't get really, I couldn't overstand until I was much further down the road. And I'm sure in 20 years, his words will cap on me in a different way. Mm. Um, but a lot of this is is just really appreciation that you are connected to our elder community and that you are an elder that really does sink in and listen to um, the youth that are younger than you um, and helping them to create and to not fall into a lot of the traps and snares that each and every one of you had already been entrapped with. Your knowledge is required for this journey. And I just, I'm so grateful that you and many other elders are just really willing to take me in and love on me and nurture me and grow me beyond myself. 
Thank you. And I love yeah. to get you down on camera as well, too, because you know that's what I do as well. That would can. be great, because I do always want to highlight our black media. I do not want white media controlling a narrative, mm. and it's been a huge issue for me. I want black media to follow, to be the first one to yes. have the story. I never want a white media person, and often I'm running from them. CNN chased me for 12 hours at the police department. Mm. <laughs> um mm. I am often running from them because <laughs> I don't want them to highlight my life. Right, I don't right. want them to be the one who comes out and talks about my life. I need it to be someone that looks like me. We need cultural congruence, and I can't talk this talk and not walk the walk. Yes. And yes. so I definitely attempt to highlight all of our Black media moguls, first and foremost. So whenever you're ready, just let me know. I'm more than happy to. Beautiful. All right. Thank you so much, Candace right. Bailey. It's been fantastic here on uh, Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. I can't thank her enough. And uh, all we can do is just say, keep up the good fight. That concludes this episode of Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. Thank you for listening. Support for Destination Freedom is provided by Bonfee Stanford Foundation, the Ulipians Fund of the Denver Foundation, and Arts and Society. Make sure you check us out at NoCredits.com and pick up our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. iTunes, Radio Public, Spotify, etc. Follow us at Twitter at Donnie Betts, hashtag NoCreditsProduction, LLC, hashtag Black Radio Days, hashtag Destination Freedom Black Radio Days. For more information, please visit NoCredits.com and click on Destination Freedom. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theater Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theater professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.